0: series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber.
1: Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, So we're going to focus in on verses 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, particularly verses 15 through 20. We're still talking about the terrible sin of immorality. And I want you to know, I don't particularly enjoy this, but when you're teaching through a book, you take the verses as they come. And that's what we're dealing with right now. That's the way we're going to go. We're going to plow right through. Have you ever noticed that God gives a balance to a people when you teach verse by verse? We could do it topically, folks. And we could always have, we try to hit a home run every time. But when you go through verse by verse, what that does, it balances your life. And you see it from God's perspective from chapter one all the way to the ending chapter of whatever book you're studying. It's always amazed me that even in Bible believing churches, how many people can set up under the word of God and come up with some of the craziest thoughts you've ever heard in your life. Now I'm not talking about just here, I'm talking about everywhere. I was in a meeting recently (laughs) and it was snowing outside, cold, everybody packed out place. The minister of music that normally does the music was not there, that service. I needed Tim really badly, but he was not there. So they had a fill in that day. And the fellow got up to start the praise time. And here's what he said. I'm telling you, I lie not. As the Apostle Paul said, I lie not. Here's what he said. He said, folks, as we get into the praise time this morning, Jesus is out in the snow and he's cold. Let's invite him in and give him some hot chocolate and make him warm. Very words that he said. Well, I was staring straight ahead (laughs) The pastor was standing beside me. I was out in the auditorium, I mean the congregation. I didn't sit up on the rostrum, And the pastor was right beside me. I saw him turn and look at me. And I knew if I looked at him, it was all over. (laughs) Do you realize now that what he said was, if you want to be spiritual, just have some hot chocolate so you can warm Jesus up. Now that came from a man who had sat for seven and a half years under the teaching of the word of God. And after the service was over, the pastor looked at me and said, Wayne, I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed, etc." I said, hey, relax. He said, what's next? I have taught these people and taught these people and taught these people. And this guy can get up and say something as off the wall as that. And I had to tell him, relax. The same thing was going on in, in Corinth. They had two of the greatest teachers known to man. They had the Apostle Paul followed by Apollos. And yet, they just didn't get it. In chapter five, committing incest in the church, one man, and they would not even deal with it. So you not only had the sin of incest with a man sleeping with his father's wife, but you had a church that wouldn't even deal with it. Matter of fact, they were going around saying, we're so spiritual, we don't fellowship with all the immoral people of the world. And Paul had to write him and say, man, what in the world are you doing? I didn't mean the immoral people of the world. I meant the immoral people in the church. Why are you not dealing with sin within the church? With all the great teaching that they had had, still they were upside down. They still did not get it. In chapter six, they were suing each other to the drop of a hat. And then in our last message, we picked up the last part of chapter 6 when he begins to deal with the terrible sin of immorality. How can this happen in a church where the Word of God is taught? Well, we're going to see some glimpses into that this morning. One of the things that you need to understand is that the sin of immorality he specifically speaks of is the the wrongful sexual relationship with others outside the marriage bond. And particularly in this situation, probably the soliciting of prostitutes, of harlots. That was what was going on in Corinth. Well, Paul showed us that to choose immorality, first of all, is very harmful, very harmful. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, what Paul wants them to understand is that just because you're under grace doesn't mean you can't put yourself back up under the bondage of sin. You see, you make a wrongful choice, that choice can put you back into bondage. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. I'm not gonna be mastered by anyone or anything other than Jesus and his word. Remember Romans chapter six and verse 16, Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And so Paul is telling them, listen, if you choose immoral sin, you're putting yourself back up under the bondage to the flesh. And that is very harmful and very, very destructive. And following the context of 1 Corinthians, you cheat yourself out of the reward you could have had one day, and you force yourself into a miserable lifestyle. Why would any believer want to do that? But the second thing we found out that it's a moral sin, it's demeaning. It demeans the very purpose God has for our bodies. He says in verse 13, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body." You see, we demean the purpose of the body. God has a purpose for this body when we commit immoral sin with others. When you step outside the marriage bond and there's adultery and immorality of this sort. The body has an eternal purpose for the plan of redemption. Now, every time you, I, I'm so grateful one day we're going to have a glorified body. I, I looked at mine in the mirror this morning. I'm real grateful that that's what we got ahead of us. But there is an eternal plan God has for the body. Food and sex are biological functions of the body. And that's just temporary at best. But the eternal purpose for the body goes much deeper, much beyond that. In verse 14, look what he says. He says, now God is not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. In other words, he says, one day this body's gonna be raised. You see over in chapter 15, he says, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you don't believe the gospel. And so you have to believe that Jesus was the first fruits and he has a purpose for this body. One day it's gonna be glorified. For right now, it's the temple of God on this earth. It's for the body yet God is for the body. Uh, 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 The body is for the Lord, the Lord is for the body, as he says earlier. In verse 19 he says, or do you not know, and we'll look at this later in depth, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So to commit immoral sin, first of all is harmful. Secondly, it's demeaning. And then thirdly, he brings up the fact that it's a sign of spiritual ignorance. For a person who claims to be a believer to commit an immoral act with another person is a sign of spiritual ignorance. He says in verse 15, "Do you not know?" What an interesting phrase. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?" Now the word for "know" there is the word "evo." Eho, yes, it means no, but it comes from the form of horao, And it has the idea, do you not perceive and understand? The idea is you may have been taught and taught and taught and taught. And somehow you have not yet grasped what you've been taught. You do not perceive. You do not understand. I know the Apostle Paul taught them. He taught the the church at Rome. He taught everywhere he taught that Christ dwells the body. He, He taught them of this eternal purpose that God has. But he says, do you not know now, folks, I'll tell you something. You can sit under teaching and you can hear teaching and hear it and hear it and hear it. But if you're not willing to obey it, all you have is information. The actual spiritual perceiving of that truth comes when you're willing to bow before God. Then the wisdom of knowing how to apply that truth comes. Then the spiritual perception begins to develop. The church at Corinth had heard the teaching but the church of Corinth did not have the perception, the understanding of the seriousness of what this teaching was all about. Well, Paul wants us and them to know that, to perceive that and to perceive the truth that, we are, that our bodies are members of Christ. Look at verse 15. He says that our bodies are members of Christ. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Now, this morning... It's wonderful to know that we're attached to Jesus. The two of us have become one. Now, how, how are our bodies members of Christ? Well, he lives in them and we're united together. Remember back in Romans chapter six when we had a little fun with verse five? Turn back to Romans chapter six and verse five. I wanna show you something this morning because Paul labored to teach this truth. And of course, Romans is called the constitution of our faith. And when you come across something in another epistle that's not fully explained, you can always go back to Romans and find out the the, the other parts that were not mentioned. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. And you know, for the young people to hear this, to understand that our bodies are members of Christ. Oh, what a wonderful truth to catch in an early age in life. When you become a Christian, our bodies are members of Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, that's a powerful verse. Of course, I'm not going back through verse one through four that kind of leads up to that. We don't have the time this morning in the message. But the word there, united with him, is one Greek word, sinfutos. Now, the word seen is the word used for with. Fuo means to spring up together, to grow up together. But the word seen is an interesting word for with. There are two words for with in the Greek language. There's the with of association. We are with each other this morning. And as soon as the service is over, each will go their own way. So therefore, we're with each other, but we're not intimately involved with one another. The other word is the word seen, which means the intimacy of of being together and being inseparable. Remember the story of the biscuit that we went over and over again back when we did the, the book of Romans? And how you put all the ingredients out on that little baking sheet. And you have, I should know by now because we did it so many times. But you have baking soda and flour and salt and all the other things that go in there because I can't remember in a while. And you put them out on a sheet of paper and all of those ingredients are with each other. Meta. You can move any one of them at any time or you can add one at any time. But you take those same ingredients and you mix them together and you put them in the form of a big old Southern cathead biscuit and you put them into the oven. By the way, that's not good to mention at this time of the (laughs) day. You put them into the oven and you bake them. And even the scientist tells us there's a molecular change to the structure of those ingredients. And after they have been baked, not even a scientist can take out the ingredients of that biscuit. They have become so seen together. Intimately they are together. And so we decided we are biscuits for Jesus. (laughs) Jesus has been baked into our life. Now, you've got to understand, we are members of Christ. Our bodies, he lives in our bodies. His spirit, his life has been put into these bodies. Now, that begins to form a foundation for which Paul is talking about here. We've got to realize that. The sin of immorality is, is, is when a person commits that and he's a believer he's showing tremendous signs of ignorance as to how serious redemption is, as to how serious his body is in the plan of redemption. Because God has come to dwell within this body. This is a wonderful truth. Back when I was in youth work in those 40 years I spent with the sheep, (laughs) Jeff, Moses thinks he had a hard time. I was in it for 15 years. I don't know how long Jeff's been in it or how long he'll stay in it. But back when I was in youth work, we used to do sometimes have a a Wednesday night Bible study for the young people. And many times we'd use skits to try to get out, to to convey a truth. Sometimes with a young person, their minds are quickened when you have scripture and maybe have something to to picture it for them. And so the senses begin to work, not only the eyes, but the mind, everything else. And so we had a skit that we used to use all the time that fits this point. And that was the skit about a, a young man who came to know Christ. And in the skit, and the moment he received Christ, immediately another boy came up and got right behind him like a shadow. And everywhere this person went, this person would follow him. To make it very obvious, he got up next to him as close as he could and sort of walked right in step with him. You ever seen somebody do that? And when he would go over and talk to his mother, this person was standing right there. When he would go to school, this person was standing right there. When he was with his friends, this person was standing right there. Never would move away from him. We had several ones come in, several little situations that we put together to show that this person never left him. Now, trying to picture that when you receive Christ, He's in you, and you can never get away from Him. You wouldn't want to get away from Him. He's with you wherever you go. When you're by yourself, He's right there. You never get to a place you can hide from Him. Well. And one of the part of the skit was the phone rings one day and somebody's inviting this young boy to a party and they're going to do some things that perhaps his newfound friend won't want to be with or, or to participate in. And so the young boy kept saying, get away from me and tries to talk on the phone without this person hearing what's going on. But the person just shows right back up again. And finally in desperation, in total frustration, the new Christian turns around, grabs this person, shoves him up against the wall, puts one hand out, nails it to the wall, takes another hand down, nails it to the wall, nails his feet to the wall and says, now you stay here, I'm gonna go live my own life, I'll come back when I'm ready. The attitude that many believers have, especially in Corinth, showed a tremendous ignorance of what had happened at salvation. As if they could be immoral and God not be involved. That's the whole point. God lives in our bodies, and these bodies have an eternal purpose. Our bodies are members of Christ. He's saying that we're one with Him. He dwells every part of us. Look at verse 15 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. The immoral sin of the Corinthian believers was to have sexual relations with someone outside the marriage bond. The word harlot there means prostitute. And I don't like to talk about this stuff, but that's what was going on in Corinth. Remember the culture of Corinth? Remember the culture? The religion of Corinth, one of the religions, was the religion of where they would worship the goddess Aphrodite or Venus. The goddess of love. And on that Acropolis, that great huge stone mountain that overlooked the city, on the top of it was the temple of Aphrodite. And they had 1,000 priestesses up there, literally prostitutes, who called themselves priestesses, who put on the bottom of their sandals in their language, Follow me. And they would come off the mountain and walk around, and wherever they stepped, there was not stone there would be in the track. follow me. And evidently, for the only thing I can read into this, evidently some of the believers had followed them because it was religious to do this. This was the religion of the people there. Oh, I'll tell you folks, when you study the Old Testament, this is everywhere. The Baals, the Asherah, the whole thing of idolatry is sensual pleasure. And when a Christian thinks for a second, that he can flirt with this kind of thing, put a religious tag to it. If he's not careful, he'll he'll be sucked right into it. And so what's happened here evidently is some of the Christians have done that. Same thing happened in the book of Judges. You see these young Jewish boys, the generation after Joshua suddenly realized that there were other religions out there. Now they're false religions, but in these other religions, they were allowed to do what in their religion was strictly forbidden. And so therefore, under the name of religion, see, normally you won't do it otherwise, but under the name of religion, they were able to slip over and to to be with these prostitutes there in Corinth. Well, they would go to the city and that's where the trouble would begin. Evidently, some of the Corinthian believers had done this and the apostle Paul is horrified and he's addressing this immoral sin of soliciting prostitutes right there. He says, verse 15, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And then he says, may it never be. That's a phrase he uses quite often in his epistles, 10 times in Romans, three times in Galatians, and once here. And the word, the phrase means, may it never be. I mean, absolutely, that's absurd. It's like Stephen saying, daddy, can I borrow your golf clubs? May it never be. You've borrowed my golf clubs before and I never got them back. (laughs) Now I've gotten you a set. May it never be that you ask for mine. In other words, it's absurd. Don't, have you ever seen these parking lot signs when you pull up into a parking place and there's a sign that says, don't even think about it. (laughs) That's exactly what he says. May it never be. To make ourselves members of a harlot by sexual relations is an absurd, absurd Ignorant act of behavior. What Paul is doing is reminding them that and us of the seriousness of immoral sin. Look at verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. Now folks, I hope you're understanding. My prayer is we'll have the deep spiritual perception of this truth so that it'll affect our behavior. That we won't walk out of here with just facts in our minds. This is important to understand. Christ lives in us. And what we do with our bodies directly affects him. And you see, what he's saying here is that if you join yourself to a harlot, you join Christ that way. You take him with you. He says, for the two will become one flesh. Now that's a phrase that finds its origin in Genesis chapter two. And it's within the marriage bond that God ordained this. When two become intimately one. It says in Genesis two twenty-four: for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Never do you find that they shall become one flesh when it speaks of individuals outside the marriage bond. A man and a wife, not a man and a man. God didn't create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve and that was his plan. And the two, man, woman in the marriage bond become one flesh. Jesus in his teaching on divorce in Matthew 19, five and six, Brings that phrase right up into play. And he says in verse five, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting out of Genesis, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, he says in verse six, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then in Mark chapter 10 and verse eight, it's brought up again, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter five. Remember Ephesians five, when it talks about a husband loving his wife, the the passages on the family. And it says in verse 31, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It is a bonding union between husband and wife that is strictly forbidden outside of that relationship. And so you see, marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. And when a person who claims to be a believer is adulterous in his relationship with others outside the marriage bond, he completely mars and destroys that picture. Look at verse 17 and shows you how this picture is worked out. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. As a matter of fact, this union, This sexual union that God gives in marriage is so beautiful. Only protected within the bonds of marriage, never allowed outside the bonds of marriage, but it so pictures the intimacy, not just that a man and a woman can have together, but the intimacy that a person has with his Lord as they are joined together and made one together. So anything that destroys that picture destroys the witness of those of us that call ourselves believers. So the sin of immorality is first, harmful. Secondly, it's demeaning. Thirdly, it's ignorant. It shows that people who set up under the Word evidently don't even understand redemption. They don't even understand the place that the body holds in redemption, and they don't understand how Christ dwells that body and how demeaning it is for the eternal purpose of what God has. Fourthly, as we go on, the sin of immorality should be avoided at all costs. Now I'll tell you what, look at verse 18. He says, flee immorality. <laughs> That's pretty clear. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now the definite article is used before the word immorality and it appears that the specific immorality that he speaks of here is the solicitation of prostitutes there in the area of Corinth. And somehow these believers who are saying openly that they live separate from the world actually are participating in some of that sin. And the word flee means to run away from these immoral women. Run, run, run. Flee, run for your life. Run as if there's fear in your heart and you must get away. It's a present imperative, which means always be doing this. Always be doing this. Always be doing this. Don't ever put yourself in a place to where some woman could entice you or some man could entice you as a woman. Don't ever do that. Flee! Flee! Run! He says. You know, when I go out walking in my neighborhood, which is rarely. (laughs) I don't know if Dr. Jones is in the service or not, but anyway, rarely. There are a bunch of dogs in my neighborhood. Uh, they don't like me. And I don't particularly care for them. I like dogs, but I don't like them when they're trying to bite you. And they just yuck, yuck, yak yak yuck, yuck, you know, these little bitty dogs. And they come by and, source. am I'm, I'm kind of a large person. I've scared some of them, some of the hair, hairs falling out of their bodies. I've scared them, scared them pretty bad. Don't worry about them. I can just say, get, get away from me, get away, get away, get away. But there's one dog in our neighborhood, folks, I run from, a Rottweiler. If he doesn't weigh 175 pounds, he doesn't weigh an ounce. That is one mean dog. My son and his buddy, matter of fact, JJ got married last night. They were out running one day and he chased JJ up a tree. I mean, this dog is mean. He lets you know that. Matter of fact, they finally had to put him in the pen. It's a beautiful dog and the people that own him are, are nice people, but this dog is a dog that you don't just say, get away from me. You run for your life. You don't wanna be in the neighborhood when that dog is out there. You see, don't get the idea that any sin is any worse than any other sin as far as eternal things with God. All sin is sin. However, most sin we can deal with quickly, but this sin, this sin, you must flee from. It's not like the others in the sense that it'll grab you, pull you down, and hold you there. It's different in its effect and in its consequences we have personally in our life. Man, if I could just get in front of a a, a thousand young people at one time and just say, let me just tell you one thing today. Flee, run, run, run is what Paul says. Because this sin, you don't understand the price you're going to pay if you allow it to affect your life. When one flees, he must be headed somewhere. That's important. You don't just run from, you run to. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy two twenty two, now flee from youthful lust, he says, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. You know, one of the things that hit me as I was studying this is if you just redirect the energy, redirect the energy that energy that the flesh has already worked up to pursue those things that are immoral. Redirect it, redirect it, and start pursuing the things that, that are righteous, the things that God would have you to pursue from a pure heart, saying, God, I know you've given me the grace to pursue you, or you wouldn't have told me to do it. And so, God, I redirect my, my, my path, and I, I pursue the things that you've put before me. Paul shows us the truth here of how this sin of immorality It's worse than other. He says in verse 18, flee immorality. And why? Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There's something about the sin of immoral relationships with another person that is different. Paul says when the sexual act is committed with anyone outside the marriage relationship, then one has sinned against his own body. Now, I'm not sure all that's involved in this, but most of us think of sexual sin as a physical act, and that is absolutely a sign of ignorance. You have bought into what the world has taught you. No, it's much deeper than that. Much deeper. Emotionally, spiritually, it goes much deeper. In fact, when you go through the Old Testament and you take the words that mean to know God, they're the same words that mean to know your wife in a sexual way. What it's talking about is something much more than external, something that's very deeply, deeply involved internally. Why is it that people that have committed immoral sin have such problems? Because they have gone beyond the external. They've gone beyond that area and they've gone deep into the recesses of the body and sinned against their own body. Now this costs, and this is why Paul is saying, to flee from it. It's the deepest uniting of two people that you can possibly have in this life. And Paul says, if you violate the way God has given it and set it up, then what you have done is sin against your own body. This is why he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he gets very specific. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And then he says in verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, the Gentile world, that's the only thing they know. But as believers, we've been saved and Christ dwells us now. And it's almost like he's saying, don't you have this perception of salvation? You're not the same person anymore. You can't live as you want to live this is why Peter says in 1 Peter two eleven, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, it's interesting that there are people in our day, if you haven't heard it, you will hear it, then they believe that the flesh is nothing more than a carton that we live in. <laughs> and therefore, we're not responsible for it because it is evil in itself. We are spiritual and we're locked into this carton. And we have no responsibility for the, for the carton because it's evil anyway. We're, we're inwardly, we're already one with Christ. And therefore, whatever the carton does does not affect us in any way. By the way, How many of you have heard that? I just want to see if anybody else out here has heard that. Yes, sir. I'll tell you, some of you will listen. It's all around you. It's a 20th century form of Gnosticism is what it is. You see, they don't see the unit of the body, soul and spirit. They don't see how it's all. And this is something our minds cannot figure out. First Thessalonians 5, 23 says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. How's he going to do that? And may your spirit, here you go, your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, because there's a unit here. I'm responsible for my body, for what it does. The Gnostics of Paul's day would say, oh no, 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 no you're not, no you're not. Why, all you have to do is name it and it'll be so in your life, because you are already one with Christ. Whatever you confess, you'll have. And whatever your flesh does, that's just demonic anyway, because the flesh is evil and responds to the demons of this world. You're not responsible for what your flesh does, that's what they would say. Look at verse 19 and verse 20 now in light of all of this. I think it begins to make more sense than ever now. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now this fleshly body I live in, yes, sir, this is where God chose to dwell on this earth temporarily. He says the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and look at the last phrase. What does it say? And that you are not your own. Well, I'll tell you what, some of these doctrines are really convenient, you know? It's really convenient. Matter of fact, some of the, it's so sad, the television programs have picked up on the fact that Christians evidently don't perceive their own salvation. And they make jokes about it. And folks, that's when it gets sad. As a matter of fact, one recent one that someone told me about was that they had a, a play there, was two of the men that have fallen that most of you know, from television and one of them, he says, he was crying and he said, well, it was just the demon of lust. And a secular television man said, boy, isn't that convenient for him? It wasn't him, it was just a demon. My flesh is not spiritual, it's it's evil but I'm spiritual, I live in this carton, and I'm not responsible for what my body does. Friend, you can't read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and ever again believe that. Because he says, you are not your own. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He owns it. Now let me explain something to you. The word temple here needs to be understood. The word temple is an Old Testament word, particularly Jewish word. And if you go back to the Old Testament to find out the temple, of God, how it was, of the tabernacle particularly, outside the eastern gate there, it faced the east, outside the eastern gate there was the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi camped, that's where it camped, right by the gate, going into the tabernacle. You know what its responsibility was? Never, ever, ever to allow anything impure inside those gates. That curtain that went around it. They could not allow anything. Now that's a picture because that was the place where God had chosen temporarily to dwell on this earth. And nothing immoral, nothing impure could enter therein. Now folks, he uses that same terminology to say our bodies are the temples of God. And so therefore, we are never to allow that to get in. All of us have from one time and another. But what this does for me, for you, for all of us is to remind us, wait a minute, what are you doing? You can't allow those things that are impure, especially in the context of what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians of immoral sin. Remember this ongoing purging ourselves of anything immoral, how we saw this in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. Would you look back just for a second just to make sure we see it? 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 5, let us therefore celebrate the feast Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he refers to the Passover. And he's just mentioned the fact of how they dealt with the Passover. And Israel only celebrated the Passover once a year. But the tense here, when it says, let us celebrate, is in the present tense. We're not like Israel. We we now have the substance of what Israel only had, the shadow. And he says, now that we're in Christ, we daily celebrate the feast by purging the body from any leaven that is there. That's the constant, 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 constant lifestyle of a Christian. I heard somebody say one day, no, we don't go around confessing sin all the time. We confess our righteousness. Where in the world does this stuff come from? We're never told to confess our righteousness. We're told to pursue righteousness. And you pursue it by faith, enabled by grace. There's no other way. And as I'm pursuing righteousness, I am constantly celebrating the feast by getting the immoral garbage out of my life. How quickly it can get in, how quickly it must get out, because it cannot celebrate the feast with that leaven in the midst. It's all a question of ownership. Who owns me? And who owns you? Verse 19 again says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I wonder how they could mess that up. But they did. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he says, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will walk in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul told the Ephesian church something that, oh, I love Ephesians. And especially the last part of chapter 2. He says in verse 21, In whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then then he marks this fact that God lives in us. He says in verse 22, In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Everywhere I go, I love to talk about that verse. This is why he says, I think in chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For what reason? You Gentiles don't seem to understand. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You're the dwelling of God on this earth. You don't live like you want to live. He owns you. So I'm, for this reason I bow my, that's why he says that you might be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 5, You also, he says, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, this other cannot at all be a part of your life. You see, we must understand. There's been a great price paid for us. Look at verse 20 now in 1 Corinthians 6. For you have been bought with a price Therefore, glorify God in your body. What price was that? In Acts 20, 28, he speaks of the church of God and he says, which he purchased with his own blood. So maybe there's a young person here this morning and maybe that's the only reason we're staying right in the text and that's why God wanted me to bring these things out. But I just pray that some young person can understand that if Christ has come to live in you, you are no longer your own. You're a brand new creature. God owns you. And God now, the body's a part of him. And you don't do with the body what you want to do. Because whatever you do, he's right there with you. Like the illustration. You can't hammer him to the wall and keep him away from your life anymore. He lives in you. Whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever you say and whatever you think, he's right there and we must learn now to accommodate His holy presence. Immoral sin will never be allowed. Well, immoral sin is harmful, demeaning, it's a sign of ignorance, it's a sign of spiritual ignorance when somebody does it and calls himself a believer. It's to be avoided at all costs. And finally, our bodies are to be used only to glorify God. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, the word here is very important. It not only hinges on the statement in verse 20 that we've been bought with a price when he says this, to glorify God with your body, but it hinges on everything we've said this morning. He says, as a result of all of these things, we have one purpose with our bodies, and that is to glorify God. Since it's true that he owns our bodies, since it's true that he indwells our bodies, then we have a great eternal purpose, and that is to glorify God. The word glorify is doxazo. Now, what does that mean? The word glorify means to give the proper esteem, the proper regard. How do you do that? By putting him into an honorable position to where he's in control. In other words, the way I glorify God is by bowing before him. And I'll tell you what, folks, even though we're talking about immoral sin being a man outside or a woman outside the marriage bond committing indecent acts with other people, Immorality is a much bigger subject than that, as all of us know. You know, most of us have one of three areas of sin we fall into. It's either covetousness, immorality, or the bitter kind of stuff and and anger that people dwell in their hearts It'll usually fall in one of those three areas. I can't find any others. But most all of us deal with immorality to, to some degree. Whether it be in the thought life, that's where everything starts anyway. Or whether it actually go beyond that. We all deal with the temptation because like Corinth, we live in a world that is saturated by it. You can't get up in Chattanooga and drive down Brainerd Road without some thoughts coming to your mind as you pass certain places. I mean, I wished it was different, but it's not. It wasn't any different in Corinth either. But the thing that will keep us going the right direction is by pursuing righteousness, pursuing righteousness, constantly cleaning out leaven. When immoral thoughts come in and they lodge and you sin with those immoral thoughts, immediately come back to the cross and, and give no allowance for the flesh and continue to live in repentance before Him, in the grace that God has given to us. Because immorality, folks, has sucked this whole world down its awful tube. But you see, it's also beginning to affect the church in a tremendous way. All of us are affected. Nobody's immune from this. For a person to point their finger at somebody who has slipped and fallen in the air of immorality is to be a foolish person because where have they slipped and fallen that perhaps isn't immorality. We know this is not finger pointing time. This is time to look in a mirror and look at ourselves and remember these bodies are the habitation of God the Holy Spirit. God lives in us and we are not our own. We are to glorify Him. How? By giving Him the proper position of Lordship in our life. That's what it means. Over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says very similar, the same thing. He said, He is also, speaking of Christ, the head of the body, the church, and He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place. In everything. That's the way you glorify him. First place in everything. Make sure you understand that he is the one to be listened to. Lordship includes what we do or don't do with our bodies, but it definitely includes the sin of immorality. That's what his context here, right? Here. It's his temple on earth, and he must be esteemed in his temple. You know, even in the area, other areas that affect our body, he mentioned food earlier. Do you remember? <laughs> I've been kind of not wanting to bring that up. <laughs> but to be very honest with the text, he does mention that. And I heard a person say, well, it's appointed for a man to die, and so if we're going to die on a certain day, why do we have to worry about it all? And I heard another person say, yes, but in the meantime, we don't want our bodies to be a liability. That made a balance to me. Even though God knows a day he'll take me out of here, I must not let my body become a liability. I've been told to lose 44 pounds. I figure a pound a year for 44 years. I'd say I'd be (laughs) 99. I think I can do that. (laughs) But you you give him the proper esteem by putting him in a place of exaltation. You exalt him to where as you listen to him in regards to what you do with your body. The sin of immorality is harmful to those who participate in it. The sin of immorality is demeaning to the eternal purpose of the body. The sin of immorality is a sign of ignorance as to God's dwelling in you. The sin of immorality is to be avoided at all cost. The bodies are only to be used for his glory. You know, it's interesting to me, there's a scripture that says, if we won't praise him, if we won't give him the place rightful place, the rocks and the trees will cry out. Do you know that scripture? I want to read an article to you. You say, Wayne, that's just figurative. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, huh? Near Beijing, China, there's a 3,400-year-old maiden hair tree, 15 feet wide, 80 feet tall. Several times every night it emits a noise, much like the sound of a human cough. Temperature changes cause it, presumably. What else might do that? Anyway, the article says, gatherings of curious people wait up just to hear it at night. You know, there's so many things we don't know. And here we are, the highest of all God's creation. He's come to dwell our lives. And he says, would you glorify me in your body? And yet the church laughs and mocks. And at Corinth, even solicited prostitutes. It's like spitting into the face of a God who died on a cross for us. Folks, this stuff is serious. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.